Well, I'm so glad you're here because last week we jumped into a brand new sermon series and you're thinking, man, Brad, it's like money and sex. What else could we talk about that could be more controversial? Well, I'll go ahead and weave in there politics. No, I'm not. But we jumped into a brand new sermon series that we're calling Holy Sex, looking at what God has to say about gender, sexuality, and marriage. Because where we are today as a culture and a country has made sexuality and marriage a flashpoint. It's a real flashpoint today. It's a hot issue, and I don't mean that in a sexy, sensuous way. The very topic of gender and marriage itself has become a lightning rod of sorts and a divider in our culture. It didn't used to be that way, but it really is now. The very topic of gender and marriage that used to be like, that's a no-brainer. We all know what we think, whether we're Christians or not. Oh, no more. It's a lightning rod and a divider of sorts in our culture. But despite all the hubbub over marriage, it's interesting to me, the beating that marriage takes, it's interesting. Americans still continue to get married. Some of them again and again and again, but they still continue to get married, and Americans, by and large, still love the wedding ceremony and the reception and see it as a, as a great reason to have a, have a party and a celebration and to make a lot of that. But the concept of marriage itself has been so humiliated and reduced and redefined that it often bears little resemblance to anything that God has to say about it, and he's the one that thought of it. But let me point out something I find interesting. Despite all the attacks, just like all the attacks on God's word, that's been going on forever, it's still the best seller every year. Despite all the attacks on marriage, marriage has proven itself to be quite resilient, quite durable. I don't think it's gonna go away. They may try to redefine it, turn it on its head, put it together differently. I don't think it's gonna go away, why? God thought of it. And it's something that the human heart actually longs for. God created this. Even some of the leading feminists, it's interesting to me, even some of the leading feminists that hate the idea of marriage are still drawn to it, nonetheless. 40 years ago, Betty Frieden called marriage, quote, a prison of domestic captivity. Yeah, and Gloria Steinem, one of the most famous, you'd know that name, Gloria Steinem, one of the most famous of all feminist theorists. She said, quote, a woman needs a husband like a fish needs a bicycle. But later in her life, she got herself one of them bicycles. <laughs> when she was in her 60s, she got married. She decided she was tired of walking and wanted to ride. So the Bible says there's two are better than one. There's something in the human heart that wants this even while it's scared of this, wants this even while it criticizes this. So in the midst of all the confusion about marriage, where should we as Christians look where should we go? Where should we look to begin a helpful, holy conversation about this thing called marriage? And how are we gonna talk about holy things in a holy way at the same time the world around us is screaming about holy things in a lowly way and lowly things in a holy way? What's gonna keep our heads screwed on straight regarding gender, sexuality, marriage? Oh, you're a good church family. I'm gonna stay here. I like you. You could do no better than to go back to the beginning. Genesis chapters one and two. You could do no better than to go back to the beginning of Genesis chapters one and two and to revisit, imagine this, here's an idea, what God had in mind. It's almost like when all else fails, read the directions. 
Read the directions. So turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. And I do hope you have what with you? Bible. Whether, whether it's an app on your phone or a Bible in your lap. App or lap. Either one will work. But I want you to see it. I want you to see it. Genesis chapter 2. And I'm going to begin reading in verses 18 through 25. Genesis 2, 18 to 25. Owner's manual. Directions from the manufacturer. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field. Now, here's what's interesting to me. He says, it's not good that man should be alone. I'm going to make a helper comparable or suitable for him. But he doesn't do that next. He says, that's what I'm going to do. He does something else first. And there's a reason. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the air, brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called them, each living creature, that was its name. And so Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. So God goes from promising he's going to do this thing to a little bit of zoology. Adam becomes the first zoologist. And he sees all the, he, he starts to notice there's a he and a she for everything. A he and a she, a boy and a girl, a he and a she, a man and a woman, but not for me. It was good for Adam to recognize and first be exposed to, I'm not drawn to the aardvarks. Porcupine, I don't think so. I'm not feeling it. He recognized everybody else has that, that partner. I don't, I don't, I don't. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. Then the Lord God caused Adam a deep sleep to fall on Adam and he slept and he took one of his ribs, which I think is, is indicative of, he took it from man's side, not his heel, not his foot, that this is to be someone that's side by side with us. He took a rib from Adam's side as he slept, and he closed up the flesh in its place, and then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man, and Adam said, this is now. In the original language, the Hebrew, it, it's like, at last, this is it, Eureka. I mean, why? He'd already looked at giraffes and zebras, and it was like, no, 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 no. This, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. This kind of talk is not given anywhere else in the Bible about any other relationship, whether it's pastor and people, elders, deacons, small group leaders, you and your children, parent, child, best friends. Folks, something really special is happening here. A man's gonna leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. They shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now there's a lot of good stuff packed into those verses. A lot of good stuff there. But I want today for you to really notice, what I want you to notice is the divine verdict. It's like there's a divine verdict that is given in verse 25. Look at it again. The divine verdict of what's going on here. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were 
not ashamed. That's one of the most powerful verses to get us moving in a helpful, holy direction with this discussion about marriage and what it's really all about. If you really want to see past the nitty-gritty push and shove of who left the, tooth, the, the, the lid off the toothpaste and which way should we put the toilet paper roll hanging on the hanger there and who left the, the toilet seat up or down and, and who's going to do laundry, this verse reminds us there's something so much bigger that gets lost, lost and trampled in the pettiness of personal preferences and turfdom. There's something bigger. Marriage by design at its very best was meant to give us a taste, a taste of what it's like to relate to another human being and to be in the presence of God without shame, without guilt or embarrassment or a sense of unworthiness or condemnation. At its best, as God rolled it off the showroom floor, marriage was designed to give us a taste of something the human heart craves and longs for. And I'm not talking about cars, houses, success and vacations and stuff. I'm talking about the longing of the heart to be accepted, known fully for who I am, yet accepted, free from Disgrace. How in the world was Adam and Eve naked? How were they naked and not ashamed? Well, listen to me. I think in the midst of a, and I know this is pre-fall. This is Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. Things are gonna get twisted and corrupted. And yet I still think it's fair to say as we live in this day on the other side of Genesis 3 with sin that this is still, it's still we need to go back to what's the original design and what was God's purpose and intent. What, if you don't know even what the original design was, you can't shoot for it. We wanna know what it was and still shoot for it. Like we're to pursue holiness, right? Today. Will you ever be perfect and fully holy? No. Then why pursue it? Ah, we're not supposed to think that way. We're not supposed to be raw pragmatists. Here's what marriage is supposed to be. You need to know that or you'll never be able to pursue and even move in that direction and see this relationship, this, this thing that God gave us become more like what it's supposed to be in the midst of a paganized world that has reduced marriage to a temporary contract that I'll keep as long as it meets my needs. And in a culture that's reduced the wonder of sex to nothing more than a biological drive on the same level with all the other animals, we need to recover and rediscover the fact that in the sanctity of Christian marriage, in the covenant of Christian marriage, in this precious, precious thing that God gave us, he intended for us to taste and to tap into a sense of his glory. His glory, his glory. So get this, the difference between male and female, the differences between male and female reflect God's glory and, sh and you shouldn't bl blur the lines. Don't try to blur the lines. It, it grieves me how more and more we see, we want women to be just like men. We want women in the front lines of military. We want women, let women be women. You thrive in ways that we are just so 
unable to do. You are women created in the image of God for the glory of God. I long for our girls to become women. That doesn't mean pregnant and barefoot in the kitchen. This is good what God has for you. Be lovely, be a woman. I don't want you with a helmet crawling through barbed wire. You don't have to prove anything, but yet we're in this culture now. We're trying to get the women to do exactly what the men can, and we're trying to get men to be just like women. Don't blur the lines. Male and female, the differences are not bad. They reflect the glory of God. The similarities between men and women, both created in the image of God, both image bearers, both with God-likeness are for the glory of God. Don't diminish that. The need for each other reflects the glory of God. Don't run from it. Don't try to hide it. Don't say, I I wish I didn't feel this way. The need for each other reflects the glory of God as God is the Trinity and is in a relationship and understands he is a relational being. The need for each other reflects the glory of God. Don't run from it. The satisfaction of the man in a woman reflects God's glory. The satisfaction of a woman in the man reflects God's glory. The very pleasures of marriage reflect God's glory. This whole one flesh relationship called marriage is an expression and a reflection of God's glory. It's not a tool in your toolbox to help you get things done. It's not a toy in your toy box for you to play with. And it's not a philosophical idea for you to debate or discard or ignore. Marriage is an amazing gift, an amazing gift that God gave to enable us, even in the midst of a fallen, broken world, to tap into and to taste and to reflect God's glory. Now, I know you might be sitting there thinking, This is so not like my marriage. This is so not like my home. Never mind. The reason I'm preaching this way is, A, it's biblical. But we need, in the midst of getting lost over disputes and pettiness and turfdom and deep hurts and pain and sin, to be reminded again, to be reminded again, to be reminded again, what's the bigger picture? What's the bigger picture? What's the bigger picture? If you get lost in the home and just turfdom, and petty disputes, you'll destroy this thing. And that's what you see happening all around us. You better keep this in mind. Because when you lose sight of the glory of God, when you lose sight of the glory of God in our gender and marriage and sexuality, you, you, you lose the most important connection. Let me say it again. When you lose sight of the glory of God in our gender, marriage, sexuality, you lose the most important connection. It's like, with your GPS or your cell phone, losing connection to that satellite or that cell tower. And what happens? Your cell phone in the top left-hand corner just begins to have a little wheel that spins and says, searching, 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 searching. And your GPS begins to say, searching. And you don't know whether to go left you don't know whether to go right. You don't know whether to continue 50 more miles on the interstate. You don't know whether to look for the, uh, an off-ramp and switch to a different highway. You are searching, and that's where we are in our culture. As our culture has severed 
a connection to the glory of God. People don't know what to do with marriage. People still want it, are scared of it, attack it, yet long for it, and they're wandering and searching and making horrific decisions because the connection to the glory of God has been lost. You see, when you bring marriage down to the lowest common denominator, you just, you just lower it down and you pin marriage to this earth right here, right now. And you make it exclusively about you with no thought of your creator. Exclusively about you with no thought of your creator. You're left with a raw, some of you say, yeah, it's pretty raw. Hollow, ugly reduction of what God designed to thrive in the context of a greater drama of his glory. It's like you can have all the ingredients. You got a man, you got a woman, you had a wedding, you made commitments, you've got wedding gifts, you got a photo album, but there's something missing. It's like, I remember going to a small group meeting at the other church, so you don't have to wonder what woman did this, so she's not here, and this cheesecake was on the table, and everyone was eyeing it and waiting for the whole thing to begin. And when we were told, go, we all went for that. I saw cheesecake on everybody's plate. What I thought was interesting is, then I started to notice in about 20 minutes, I saw cheesecake sitting on the top of the mantle. I saw cheesecake on the table. I saw, and every piece had one bite out of it. And that was it. I had been talking with people. Imagine that. So I hadn't taken a bite. I took a bite. I was like, whoa. Something was missing. And it was awkward. No one wanted to say to Gail, Gail, what happened? She was famous for her cheesecakes. We all went for it. It's like Margie Petrie here. She has this certain thing she does. We all went for it. No sugar. <laughs> that, if you don't know, that affects a cheesecake. <laughs> it's way too cheesy. Folks, marriage disconnected from the glory of God doesn't have the sweetness. You'll take a bite and you'll be tempted to set it down. We have to keep that connection. You have to have this connection to the glory of God. And because the glory of God is essential in our understanding of marriage, Genesis, it shouldn't surprise us, is not the only place where the Bible, in the Bible where you find God zooming out and giving us this bigger picture, stepping back and saying, wait a minute, step back a little further. You need a bigger picture. Don't just zoom in and look at it like this. Step back and giving us a bigger picture and showing us a greater drama and purpose than just companionship and procreation. Ephesians chapter five is one of those amazing passages. Ephesians chapter five is one of those amazing passages where God fastens a wide angle lens on the front of the camera as he swings it towards marriage. So very often when God gets ready to talk to us about marriage, he fastens a wide angle lens on the front of the camera and then swings it towards marriage. And, and many of you sitting here may think you know, oh, I, I know what Ephesians 5 is about. And to some extent, you probably do. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, be submissive to your own husbands. But there's something often overlooked, missed, Ignored altogether, uncaught, because we're so busy looking for ourselves in the passage. You know what I mean? 
Have you noticed this? It doesn't matter how much older I get. In fact, as I get older, I think it gets worse because as I get older, you just don't look good in almost any picture. It doesn't matter what shirt you have on. You know, we're done with saying, that's bad lighting. That's just bad me. It's just like, oh. And Vicky and I laugh and we'll say to each other, you know, we get summer pictures back or Christmas like, I guess that's as good as it gets. You know, we're trying to pick one to send out for Christmas and you try to, you know, it's like, I just look old and tired, so it is what it is. But with pictures, notice, here's what I think is funny. When, when a photo gets handed around, when someone tags you in a photo on Facebook, when someone takes a picture with their iPhone and you're part of that group and then it starts being shown around, what is the first thing you look for? And that's the only thing that matters as to whether that's a good or bad picture. Oh, that's a great picture. Send it out, post it. She looks horrible. She was caught sneezing, but you look good. And so it's good, post it. And when you don't look good, it's like, don't dare post that. Do not, don't, don't do that. We're looking for us. We're looking for us. Guess what? Too often we're guilty of reading our Bibles like that. We read it looking for us. Now, are we in here? Oh yeah, and you'll, you'll pick up on that in a hurry. We're in here, no doubt we are in here. We are in it. But we're so busy zooming in on ourselves, magnifying ourselves, that we miss the bigger picture and the central focus. And you say, so what, what's the big deal? Here's the big deal. I hope you'll see yourself, but when you zoom in on yourself, when you magnify yourself, when you make the most of yourself, it hurts us as we read our Bibles. Because we end up drawing conclusions, making decisions, and setting priorities without really ever understanding what the passage is about and what really matters most, most. So turn with me your Bibles to Ephesians 5 and follow along as I read verses 22 to 33. Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 33, and here's the assignment. You ready? Look at me. As we read it, I want you to look for you. Yay. But look for you in the context. Look for you in the context of someone else who matters most. Ready? Here we go. Ephesians chapter five, beginning in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife as also Christ is head of the church and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. That he might present it to himself a glorious church. Not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. But that it should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. For he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just 
as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones for this reason. Now he quotes from Genesis 2 where we already were. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery. Now see, a lot of jokes are out there that the big mystery is that you can't figure out a woman. In the Bible, that's not the big mystery. No reference to the mysterious nature of women. No. This is a great mystery. What, Paul? I speak concerning Christ and the church. Now, did you see it? Did you keep the wide-angle lens on the picture as we looked at marriage? Because if you did, you should have seen something woven all the way through these verses. And it's this, the thing that stands out the most about Paul's approach to marriage, which would be the Holy Spirit's approach to marriage, which would be God's approach to marriage, as he inspired the Apostle Paul to write this, is that Christ is the reference point for all of our actions and attitudes in marriage. Christ. If you miss Christ, marriage makes no sense and you'll never be able to do what God's called us to do. If you miss Christ, if you lose the connection to the glory of God and you miss Christ as the key player in this thing, it's not just the two of you in that home. It's not just the two of you having a discussion in the bedroom. It's not just the two of you holding hands and enjoying each other. It's not just the two of you going for a walk. It's just not the two of you sitting down with a checkbook and sorting out ahead of time what you're gonna give. It's not just the two of you. Christ, if you miss Christ, Marriage makes no sense. So look at what Paul's doing in these eight verses. Six times in these eight verses, he uses the little word as or the phrase just as. As, just as. Look at it again with me. Verse 22, wives, submit to your husbands. Be submissive to your husbands as to the Lord. Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife as also Christ is the head of the church. Verse 24, therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, let wives be to their own husbands. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Verse 29, husbands should nourish and cherish their wives just as Christ does the church. You see, apart from, folks, apart from Christ, we can't do this thing called marriage. We got nothing. John 15 tells us, apart from me, you can do how much? Nothing. If you eliminate God, if you wipe out any concept of a savior, 
and you remove the richness of the gospel and the mercy of God that's been extended to each one of us as a believer, and you narrow the focus down to one man and one woman, a husband and wife, naked on the stage of marriage with no greater resources than their own, and no drama or destiny or canvas backdrop that's bigger than your wish list versus her wish list of what you want, you have doomed marriage to a war zone and ultimate failure. What you'll see is the once lofty feelings of love that you had for each other. When you reduce it down to one man and one woman naked on the stage of marriage with no greater resources than their own, no greater drama or destiny than their own wish list, those once lofty feelings of love will get eroded and eaten up, eroded and eaten up and picked apart one petty skirmish at a time with each party demanding their own rights and pushing their own agenda and looking for ways to belittle, belittle and shame and intimidate and bully the other into being and doing what you want them to do for your dream, for you. Let me say it to you this way. Marriage, marriage becomes mercenary when you take your eyes off Christ. We've got too many people that are just suited up as mercenaries in this thing called marriage. And they went into it, sadly, because the world talks this way, and, I, and my heart goes out to every woman who grows up just on a steady diet of chick flicks no man out there is gonna be like these guys. It ain't gonna happen. And then men that grow up with nothing but a steady, steady, just input of pornography and sexuality and raw, just bring it down to lust and my satisfaction and women are just objects. It's just a, a means by we, me to release my sexual fervor and passion and have my thrill and my joy. Here's what men are being raised on all their life. And here's women being raised on this all their life. Is there any wonder it isn't going well after they say I do and move into that apartment or that home? You've gotta have the glory of God and you've gotta have Christ. And you need to understand, what, what, what's the purpose? What's the design? Why was this given? Marriage becomes mercenary and mercy, the commodity that is essential for two sinners to thrive in this thing called marriage, gets trampled, trampled in each new battle. Less mercy, more me, more bitterness, less mercy, more me, more bitterness. As each person pulls back more into their corner, more into their corner, more into their corner. And it's not that every person that's experienced this has reached the point of divorce. Sadly, many have. We've got people that are not divorced, that are roommates, enemies, still in the, under the same roof, but not tasting or tapping into or experiencing anything like God intended for marriage to be. That's what's happening all around us and, and we can't just point outside the church and say, look at it, look at it. Sadly, it's crept into the church and is sitting in the front row. Too often, right in the front row. And it's time for the church. The church needs to stand up 
and start telling and retelling this marriage story and setting it in the context of something greater, a greater drama of God's glory and purpose. Our gender and sexuality and marriages are to be a reflection of God's glory. When you lose sight of that and you just keep looking for yourself in the photo, trying to make it all about you, you will never experience the richness, the pleasure, the depth, the joy that God wants you to have in your marriage. Listen to me, when you try to make it all about you, the toxicity of you at the center of it destroys it. Too much you will ruin it. I know what you're thinking though, because I've been there. In the first two or three years of our marriage, I was holding on to my life, holding on to my life, holding on to my life, so afraid of losing my life, thinking, It'll just never be the way I want. I'll never read again. I'll never, I'll never, I'll never, I'll never, I'll never. The more I held on, the worse our marriage got. And when I said, Lord, all right, if I never read again, if I never whatever again, I wanna please you. Guess what I got back? A fabulous marriage. Perfect? Yes, no. No, not perfect. Had one of our biggest fights this weekend, of course, since I'm preaching on marriage. Right as she's to leave for Knoxville to be with my mom for surgery. And we've patched things up, reconciled. So we still have bumps in the road. And it was my fault. You don't have to wonder about it. I was clueless. After 27 years, I was still clueless on something. And didn't even know it. I'm like, are we okay? You seem mad. She's like, yeah, I'm mad. <laughs> and she cried. She was mad and she cried. So it still happens. Oh, it's so good. It is so good. It's better than I could ever imagine. Imagine this. Shouldn't surprise us. It's Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who was able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that you ask or think. I never thought it could be this good. I never had a best friend. I had a twin brother. I never had best friends. This is a relationship like no other. Like no other. This whole thing called marriage is woven and wrapped around Christ and the glory of God. And you can see the drama that I'm talking about pinpointed in verse 32. So I want you to look at it again because there's something glorious and mysterious taking place. There is something glorious and mysterious and bigger taking place in the midst of sickness and child rearing and leaky roofs and parent-teacher meetings and financial goals. There's something bigger taking place in the very midst of all this. Let's start in verse 31 and wind into it again. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. This is a mystery, a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. That last phrase takes marriage and ramps it up. It's a great mystery. He's saying, don't keep it this low. Don't keep it pinned right here to the earth. Don't make it all about you. Even as I talk about husbands loving their wives and laying down their lives, even as I talk about wives submitting to their husbands as to the Lord, as I talk about these earthly things, don't keep it pinned down this low. There's a great mystery. I speak concerning Christ and the church. That phrase takes marriage and ramps it up, supercharges it, infuses it with dignity, that lifts it from the trenches and points it to something bigger. 
and loftier. Oh, listen to me, I know. 27 years of marriage, five kids, I know, I know. It's easy to get lost in, in making lunches and starting coffee and doing laundry and cleaning bathrooms and juggling schedules and deciding whose home we're gonna spend Christmas at. You can get lost in all of that. And so Paul says, look up, there's something bigger. There's something bigger, the glory of God. Paul says there's something at the very heart of a marriage, particularly a Christian marriage, that preaches a sermon about Christ and reflects the glory of God. At its best, Paul says, the love of a Christian marriage reflects the love for Christ and his church. That means a strong Christian marriage is a billboard for the glory of God and our Savior. But now get this, and this is gonna hurt, but I hope it hurts in a helpful way that gets you moving. An ugly Christian marriage is like graffiti. An ugly Christian marriage is like graffiti because it sends all the wrong messages. It defaces and devalues something precious. And it misrepresents the glory of God and our Savior. Because it sends all the wrong messages. It represents chaos and scarring and twisting. I, I don't know about you, maybe it's just me, I don't think so. I hate to see graffiti. I feel angry when I see graffiti, especially if it's close to my neighborhood. It's unsettling, very unsettling. I, I get fearful, insecure. It's like no one's in control because it's the very opposite of shalom, wholeness, well-being, a sense of rightness in the midst of so much that is wrong. Listen to me. If you're here and you have an ugly, disjointed, bitter, selfish, Christian marriage, you're spraying graffiti all over the glory of God and your Savior. Your selfishness, you're demanding your own rights. You're refusing to forgive. Your bitterness, it's the difference between shalom and graffiti. The two communicate two very different things and make people feel two very different things. So we, what we need in this land, listen to me, I have a hope, but it's not what some people are trying to make it. What we need in this land is not more legislation regarding marriage or prayer or anything. What we need in this land are waves and waves and waves of healthy, vibrant, joyful, Christ-centered, God-honoring marriages who haven't lost sight of the bigger picture God's glory and the central character Jesus Christ. The bigger picture God's glory and the central character Jesus Christ. That's what we need and I would love for our church to start it. I would love for it to start here. I would love for it to begin here. That's what our land needs. That's what our community needs. That's what your workplace needs. That's what the gym needs. That's what the neighborhood needs. And I believe that would make a better case for God's plan of marriage, much more effectively than any state or federal laws. We need Christians to lay aside their rights and to humble themselves and to forgive each other and to get the big picture as they rise up for the glory of 
God and put Christ on display. It's not all about you. The toxicity of you at the center of it is poisoning the whole thing. Russell Moore said, real faith often thrives when it's in sharp contrast to the culture. That's the day we live in. Praise God. Real faith often shines when it's in sharp contrast with the culture around it. That's why the gospel, he says, rocketed. The gospel rocketed out of the first century from places like Ephesus, Philippi, Rome, Corinth. Folks, these were not hothouses for family, Christian, conservative values. That's not why the gospel took off. None of these cities had moral systems that promoted healthy marriages. In fact, the very contrast between Christian marriage and the wreckage of pagan marriages often extolled Christianity. Have you heard of Plutarch, philosopher in that day? Plutarch, in that day, gave a speech entitled Advice to Bride and Groom. Imagine this, he's a philosopher. Gave a speech at a wedding titled Advice to Bride and Groom where he extolled the virtues of adultery. Adultery. And he said, it is respect for her which leads him, the husband, to share his debauchery, licentiousness, and wantonness with another woman. It was just that sort of nonsense that strengthened the appeal to Christianity. Listen to me. Do we have nonsense today on Dr. Phil, on all the experts, on blogs? There's nonsense, and it should extol the glories of Christianity if God's people still had the big picture and the central character in a place and were living and looking differently. But sadly, too often, they're not. And then they rush to Washington or wherever their state capital is trying to scream their way into changes with laws. Don't hear me saying don't vote, do. Don't hear me saying don't write a letter, do. Do do hear me saying don't put your hope in that. We've got something greater and more powerful. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. We don't have to fight like the rest of the world. God intended marriage to be a constant flashing billboard that puts on display the glory of God. Thank God for pastors and prophets and preachers. I'm pleased to be one. Thank God for good churches that still stand for truth. But folks, If every believer who was married began to work on, not perfect, but move it towards, we do this as unto the Lord for the glory of God, and you display your Savior and mercy and grace and forgiveness and humility, what might the world say? And we could stop trying to have fall festivals and bingo and give away a TV and all this other nonsense to draw unbelievers. They'd be chasing us down and saying, what church do you go to? How did you get this way? Why do you love your wife like that? Why do you prefer him? Why do you do this? How can you do this? It's because of Jesus and I live for the glory of God and I've got an eternal perspective and I'm not lost in toilet paper, toothpaste, the lid of the toilet, my agenda, her agenda, my desires, her desires, there's something bigger that's what we need as we head into this next decade you should put cultivating a godly marriage at the top of your to-do list we got too many Christians that are building their career chasing their hobbies living for their kids while their marriage is on life support 
That needs to change. That needs to change. Let me ask you, what do people closest to you think of Jesus and the church and this great message of the gospel as they look at the photo album and snapshot of your marriage? You say, Brad, that's not fair. It is fair. It's biblical. I don't expect it to be perfect, but Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. You should be willing to say, follow us. We won't get this perfect. We won't get this right all the time, but you could follow us. The photo album of your marriage and the snapshot of the way you relate to each other, the way people see you relating to each other in the yard as you rake leaves, in a restaurant as they watch you across the room, your countenance and your conversation, in the gym as they hear you answer the phone and it's your wife, the way you relate to each other, the way you don't talk about your spouse when they're not there at work or in the gym, all of that is an opportunity to preach a sermon that many will never show up here to hear, but you take it where the people are. That's what God intended. That's how God designed it. The glory of God can get in all the crevices and dark crannies of this world as believers go forth living for the glory of God in their marriage, putting their Savior on display. Making people that's what it means to be salty. And you just sprinkle a little salt and someone says, I'm thirsty now. I wasn't thirsty before, but I'm getting around them and I realize there's something they have I don't have that I want. I'm thirsty. They had a craving and a longing that they thought was car or house or vacation, but they recognize it's something else. It's something else. It's something else. We get to connect them and point them towards that something else. Does your marriage make our savior and the gospel Attractive. If your answer is anything other than yes, then I hope you think I've got some work to do and I've got a new priority. Let's pray together. Lord, I know there are people hurting here today. People who are married, who are disillusioned, who are tired, who are numb, who are past ever trying again, they think who are, yes, even hopeless, functioning as roommates, just trying not to get more hateful and bitter, but have given up long ago any hope of the throes and the glories and the warmth and the sense of being caught up and their breath being taken away that they had in the early stages of their romance. God, give them hope again for a new purpose and a new reason, a new design, and a new focus. Oh, there are people here who are divorced, who are still stinging, aching, hurting, with, a, with an open wound from the wrenching and the, and the tearing away of what was meant to be one flesh. Oh God, pour your balm of Gilead onto them. Pour your grace on them. Wrap them in your love and give them hope, hope. They're singles who are here who are scared to death as they see what's happening in our culture with marriage, as they see what's happening with marriage in the church. God, give them courage to not run from it, but to step towards it with your original design and purpose and focus and help and an excitement that I get to do this. I can be a part of this. Something bigger than me. They're singles who are lonely 
and longing, longing for this good gift. And it's right. It's appropriate that they long for it. Don't take the longing away, God. Fulfill it. But as they go into it, let them go into it with a bigger picture and not just the toxicity of me at the center of it. Oh God, take our breath away with a bigger picture of what you're doing in our sexuality and marriage. Help us to stop obsessing over ourselves and fix our eyes on Jesus. Help us to stop focusing on our own pain and to consider again the agony of what you suffered on the cross to rescue us from us. Use us for your glory. Help us to see that living for your glory starts with laying our gender and sexuality and marriage and singleness on the altar and saying, God, be glorified. Use me. I want to be part of something bigger than me. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.